The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Expecting your first child can be an extremely emotional and overwhelming time in your life, particularly when you're considering all the varying birthing options that are now available. In 2019, one in four women had an instrumental vaginal delivery for their first birth. So how do you know what to do and what to expect from a vaginal birth? Today on MediTalk, I speak with Dr. Adam Gabay, an obstetrician and gynaecologist at St. John of God Hospital in Subiaco. So how many women uh, give birth naturally versus caesarean? The majority of women will give birth naturally. Uh, In Australia, about two-thirds of women uh, end up with a vaginal delivery. And how common is it for women to have a birthing plan and and it may change? Well, I suppose with this one, it depends on what sort of plan they've got. Mm. So if they have a a very broad uh, general plan, then that will tend to encompass most eventualities. However, if it's a very specific birthing plan, then obviously um, uh, the birthing plan um, may need to change. So I suppose uh, it depends on the definition. But what I would say is probably about half of first-time mothers that go into labour end up having the labour that we both roughly thought uh, she would have. Uh, when you move on to your second, your third, your fourth baby, it's a lot more common for things to go much more to plan. And then what do we learn in an antenatal class? So, you know, when parents are contemplating, should we do them, should we not do them? What what are you actually learning when you do those classes? Yeah, so you're learning about um, having a healthy pregnancy. Um, uh, you're learning about the stages of labour, what your pain relief options might be during the labour. Um uh, about instrumental deliveries, which means either a vacuum delivery or a forceps delivery, um, caesarean section. And then afterwards, uh, you're learning about breastfeeding and early parenting. And then when should you actually get to hospital? Because we see on television, you know, yeah. all these cases of either, you know, um, people having deliveries in, you know, in, in ambulances or in cars or when is it exactly when parents should be getting those warning signs and getting themselves to a hospital? Yeah, getting to hospital. Well, um, sometimes it's obvious and the, basically if the waters break mm-hmm. and that is usually pretty obvious, there's a big gush of fluid mm. that comes down and it just keeps coming or if you develop contractions. Now, uh, with the first baby, um, because things tend to be a lot slower, you can wait until the contractions build up to every five minutes. Okay. However, with the uh, with the second, third, or fourth baby, um, typically uh, uh, it's when they get to ten minutely contractions. Okay. So sometimes it is obvious like that, but at other times it's not very obvious, um, and uh, so it may be associated also with some pains or a bit of bleeding or a bit of mucus discharge, um, or you're worried about the baby's movements, and so. Uh, you know, a woman should never hesitate to ring up the midwives and tell them the story, and the midwives will be very will be able to direct the woman about what to do. Um, so, don't hesitate. The, the midwives also are keen to know, you know, who's out there and who might be coming in because they've got mm. 
they've got to plan things as well. And then do the contractions come before the water breaking or vice versa? How does it actually work? <laughs> yeah, so uh, most of the time it's the contractions that start first. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, I think it's about uh, 80 or 90% of the time. But sometimes you can just break your waters and that's all, that's the only warning you get. Um, but eventually, in most situations, the contractions will then start up in the next few hours or occasionally day or two. Okay. And then how long from a, a woman's water breaking to starting labour? Can it happen, can it vary between between women and, and how much so? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's quite variable. Um, if, uh, uh, say, a woman breaks the waters, typically the contractions will start up within a number of hours, sometimes a day or two or even longer. Wow. Especially in the rare situation that it's a preterm rupture of membranes, that can occasionally go on for a number of weeks. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That, is that very common? No, that is not common. Thank goodness common. <laughs> for most women out there. Yeah. And then what are the different stages of labour? Yeah, so the... the the different stages of labour. So uh, uh, you've got you can divide it up into latent phase and active phase. Mm. So the latent phase of the labour is the labour you have before the cervix, that's the neck of the womb, actually starts to dilate up. Okay. Now you can get fairly strong contractions, and you might think you're in labour, be quite distressed, but in fact your cervix hasn't started to dilate up, and that can last for typically hours or occasionally even a day or two. So mm-hmm. that's the latent phase of labour. And that's the long bit, okay? And um, that's the bit that often women will think they've been in labour for days, but in fact, we call that the latent phase labour. So us doctors and midwives don't count latent phase labour as the proper start of the labour. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the active phase of the labour. That's the bit when the cervix actually starts to dilate up. So that will typically be when your cervix is, say, one, two or three centimetres and it dilates up to uh, 10 centimetres of full dilatation. And that will typically take um, a number of hours, maybe five or, or eight hours. So that's the, um, the active phase of the labour. And that, that first bit as the cervix is dilating up is what we call the first stage of, of labour. The second stage of labour is when you push your baby out. And the third stage of your, lab- of your active labour is when... Uh, the placenta comes out. And then what are the pain relief options? Are, are there new ones out? What What are the options out there that we can have? Unfortunately, things haven't changed a lot. Things are a bit better, though, but the, you've got three main forms of pain relief. You've got gas, um, pethidine or morphine, which is the opiate medications that are injected into your thigh, mm. and the epidural, that's the needle in the back. They're the three options. And then what are the sort of pros and cons from each of those options? Okay. So nitrous oxide gas uh, is uh, laughing gas, mm. and it actually is pretty effective pain relief. Okay. Uh, you'll typically get about a 70%, 70% reduction in uh, the amount of pain. Um, it's delivered by a whistle, so you're sucking on this whistle for the minute of the contraction. So something like we've seen on Bondi Rescue, perhaps. Yeah, yeah that's... Or what that's, they do in a... In it's a, similar. It's okay. similar. It's slightly different drug, but it's similar. Yeah. Um, so you've got the minute of the contraction when you suck on the, on the gas yeah. and the three or four minutes in between when you take a break. So it, it requires you to be involved. Mm. Um, I would say the downsides are that if it's a long, slow labour, it can be pretty tiring sucking on the gas. Mm. Um, and also at the end, when you're pushing the baby out, you can't suck and push at the same time. So you've got to just mm. keep pushing without the gas. 
Um, then the second option is pethidine. This is probably the least effective. Uh, it's an injection into your thigh. It can be given every um, four hours. Um, the issue with the pethidine is that it probably only takes about half of the pain away. It takes the edge off it. Mm. And so it's often used in combination with the gas or sometimes as a stepping stone uh, to an epidural. And then finally, the, the epidural. So the epidural, it's an, a needle which is uh, placed to find the space um, in the lower back mm. near where the bag of nerves is. And the needle, uh, a plastic catheter is then passed down the needle. The needle then comes out and the plastic catheter is, is then stuck to your back such that the midwives can administer uh, uh, the anaesthetic every um or the, the pain relief every one to two hours. And that typically is very effective pain relief. I would say about um, 80 to 90% of women are very happy with their epidural. And do you have to decide before? No. That's the beauty of it in uh, almost all um, uh, maternity units, but definitely at St. John's Subiaco, uh, we have an excellent epidural service. So you can make up your mind in the middle of the night uh, and uh, get an epidural. Uh, if you need. Because you may not need it. You may it? not need yeah. it. Yes, you oh, may not need good. it. Uh, typically, about 70% of first-time mothers in Australia end up with an epidural okay. for a variety of reasons. Mm. Uh, if it's your second or your third baby, it's more like 50%. And do you think that fear of the epidural has sort of, did you, you know, reduced over the time, you know, because people, it's it's safe, is it? Uh, yeah, look, the epidural is extremely safe, I would have to say. That's um, good. Uh, yeah, the chance of having some sort of uh, complication of of a moderate nature is the, the commonest one. I'm thinking would be about uh, one in two hundred. The commonest one I'm thinking about is where, when the epidural needle is put in, it can tear the bag of nerves, and so you leak that spinal fluid. You get this terrible headache that can last for a number of days. Mm. That can be. Uh, um, uh, fixed up pretty easily with, with a, a blood patch, which is an injection of blood into the area where the leak occurs. But it's it's not pleasant, yeah. and I, I would see that every year or two. Okay. That's the commonest significant one. In terms of serious stuff like infection or bleeding causing nerve damage or something terrible, that is extremely rare. That We're talking about once a year in the whole of Australia, sort of rare. Okay. And then when are women encouraged to push? Okay, so uh, so first of all, you've got to get to full dilatation. So that's when the cervix has gone from a few centimetres to becoming 10 centimetres of fully dilated. Mm -hmm. Okay, Now, if you don't have an epidural in, you'll tend to have a very strong urge to push at that stage. We let you push. Mm. However, if you do have an epidural in, you'll often have very little feeling down there. So we'll, we quite commonly give you another hour to let the head descend even further down into the vagina. Uh, but then we get you pushing. Okay, mm. so we we get you pushing once you're fully dilated, and uh, sometimes with an epidural in, we can wait another hour. Okay, and then <clears throat> episiotomy. Can you just explain w what that is and and when you might be recommended to have one? Yeah, so an episiotomy is a surgical cut, um, so as to enlarge the uh, the um, the vulva and vagina where the, the baby's actually coming out from. Mm. Um, so it's it's made with uh, a pair of scissors, mm. sharp scissors, um, and um, uh, if it's if one imagines the uh, a clock face, mm. it's at the back of the vagina, uh, cut in the direction of the eight o'clock, like okay. so, so as to uh, no, n not be anywhere near the anal area. 
Okay. And is it does it happen fairly quickly and is it very painful? Would women... We would only do an episiotomy with pain relief. In mm-hmm. other words, if you have an epidural in or um, if you don't have an epidural in, um, we give you some local anaesthetic prior and then cut with episiotomy. We never cut episiotomies without um, a pain relief. And how common is natural tearing? Essentially... The way to look at it would be one-third, one-third, one-third. So one-third no tearing, one-third tearing, and one-third episiotomy. Mm. So what's, how is it that some women tear and, and some women won't? Is there r- rationale behind it? Is it because of the delivery of the baby is bigger and the woman might be small? Is it, you know, yeah, is so more sort of risk of you tearing versus... It's one of those things that... Uh, it's the decision made at the last minute, mm. um, and it is relatively hard to predict. Yeah. So there's no question, if it's your second baby, you have a much lower chance of tearing or needing an episiotomy. Um, of course, common, com- common sense things, if it's a huge baby mm. around the wrong way, you know, in other words, with the woman lying on her back, the baby is looking up to this, coming out, looking up to the ceiling. Mm. That's a much bigger diameter of the head coming through. That's a posterior delivery. Um, so obviously you'll have a higher rate of tearing and episiotomy. Um, and then if a forceps are used, so very rarely these days we use forceps. Forceps are like metal tongs. They go mm. around the baby's head. And, of course, you're not only pulling out the baby, you're pulling around out the forceps around the head. Mm. So in that situation you, you need to make an episiotomy. And can you prevent a a natural tear from happening? Look, there is some reasonable evidence that um, preparing yourself prior to the delivery will help. We Mm. call that perineal massage. Mm. Um, Essentially, in the last number of weeks leading up to the delivery, uh, the woman or husband uh, massage the the back part of the vagina where the vagina and the anus are closest Mm. and stretch that up. um, uh, And there is some evidence that that reduces the risk of tearing, of pain, and a need for an episiotomy. Okay. So that can be done. How does a, a woman heal after perhaps having a little bit of tearing? Yeah, it's it's sort of uh, a common sense stuff mainly, um, hygiene in that uh, just a shower or maybe a salt bath uh, each day. Um, and sometimes we actually use... Estrogen cream. Oh, right. Uh, and this is because when you've had a baby, you are relatively estrogen deficient. In other words, you have low estrogen hormones. Estrogen is the hormone that gives women the soft, thick skin. Mm. Um, and uh, so that can be uh, applied in the evening time over the area where it's sore. And that uh, definitely improves the situation. Okay. And then what are some common complications that, that come after giving birth naturally? You know, such as bleeding, infection. Yeah, so uh, so the common one would be uh, infection. So the two common infections are infection where the tear or the episiotomy are. Mm. When I say common, uh, maybe one in 50 women, one in 25 women. Uh, that's typically sorted out relatively easily with antibiotics. Okay. Um, the other relatively common infection would be infection in the lining of the womb where that where the placenta was, there's a raw patch there that can get uh, infected. Again, that's usually treated with uh, antibiotics. Um, occasionally, there are there's a bit of of uh, material left behind, such as membrane or a piece of placenta. Uh, that's not always possible 
to be determined after delivery because the placenta might look as though it's complete, but there might be a small amount left. Um, and in that situation, sometimes uh, the doctor needs to go back and remove that with a little operation. Mm. Um, the other one would be mastitis or breast abscess. Yes, that's so, is that common? Yes, that's very common. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, maybe uh, one in 15 women get mastitis. If you've had one bout of mastitis, it's much more common to get another. Mm. Um, so, um, But the important thing is to get onto it quickly yes. Um, so as to prevent breast abscess, which is much less common, but... That's not nice, breast abscess. That will need to be surgically um, drained. And then how can you um, heal from mastitis? Is that antibiotics as well? Yeah, mastitis is antibiotics. Typically it comes on quickly, a high temperature, the woman feeling unwell. She might look down and see a red area on the breast and it's a matter of getting to the doctor uh, as soon as possible, mm. getting some antibiotics and almost always it's sorted out with antibiotics. And would you go to your GP if you can't go to your obstetrician typically, and they can take care of you? Typically you go to the GP. Mm. It's uh, uh, relatively uh, straightforward. And then vaginal prolapse and incontinence, <coughs> um, is there ways of preventing that and, and you know, how common is that, that, that women might experience that? Well, I th so vaginal prolapse um, in the long term uh, is uh, relatively common. I think about 10% of women end up requiring surgery for the prolapse. Uh, for prolapse, but that typically occurs much later in life when oh, they're right. 50, 60, 70, that sort of thing. So it doesn't happen um, straight away after birth. It'll no. happen uh, years later yeah, as they get older. That's right. It, it really can happen um, within the few years after delivery, but typically it's a, a combination of aging mm. plus uh, the relative stretching that occurs with natural childbirth. Mm. Um, the other, the other relatively common complication is uh, ur stress urinary incontinence. By that we mean that when the woman jumps, coughs, or laughs, she loses a bit of urine. Mm. Typically related once again to the uh, the birth canal being stretched, and the 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 sphincter mechanism which holds the urine in being um, being. Uh, uh, disrupted, and that's relatively common as well. Again, that will typically happen a little bit later, forties, fifties, sixties. And will it thing. get better in time? You know, do, or do women actually have to actively perhaps go and see physios and yeah. work on their pelvic floor? Unfortunately, these things tend to get worse with time, and that's because it's it's age related, and uh, these sort of things get worse. So physio can help; it can hold off things. Um, uh, with lesser degrees, but with more serious degrees, uh, unfortunately, surgery is uh, often required. And so can you, um, you can't prevent it by going to your physio and working on your pelvic floor or Pilates. A lot of women are trying to get fit in their pelvic floor strong before they have children. Yeah, there's, there's, there's better evidence after the delivery that these things help. Before right. delivery, there's, uh, there's less evidence, but I'm sure it doesn't hurt. But okay. the, the jury's not really out on that one about pelvic floor exercises prior to delivery. Good to know that it's good after. What are some of the most commonly asked questions that you might get pre and post birth, particularly maybe after they've come and they've had their baby? Um, well, I think that these days, because we have a very healthy population, I always get asked about exercise. Mm. And um, typically after a vaginal birth, um, I'm quite happy for exercise to start a few weeks after vaginal birth, building up slowly. And after caesarean section, it's um, typically after about six weeks. 
But uh, usually there's no problem with uh, walking for a kilometre, two, three or four uh, within the first few weeks after delivery if, if all's gone well, and it usually does. Mm. So getting out that new pram and, mm. and giving a good run for its money. <laughs> yeah. So exercise is... Exercise it, is good. Exercise is good. Yes. And what about vitamins? I know I've seen some of your fantastic posts on Instagram. What's your thoughts on vitamins uh, either pre- or post-pregnancy? Yeah, so um, it depends on the vitamin uh, or the supplement. So there's no question that folic acid has been proven to reduce the risk of spina bifida and related conditions. Uh, it reduces it by about 70% and folic acid should be taking, taken one month before conception and for the first three months of delivery, it's typically a half a milligram of folic acid. If you have specific conditions such as, say, um, uh, um, epilepsy or um, a previous baby with, say, spina bifida, then you should be taking five milligrams or megafol. Regarding iron, um, I'm, in my opinion, I'm, iron supplementation is a very good idea. And most women typically are close or iron deficient in pregnancy. However, you can get uh, the iron you need from uh, a very healthy, varied diet, but it usually requires meat. And a lot of a lot of my patients don't eat a lot of red meat. So if they don't eat a lot of red meat, definitely iron supplementation. Regarding general vitamins, I think it's a good idea. There is some evidence that multi there's some evidence from studies that multivitamin supplementation uh, in places where um, uh, where diets are a bit deficient does reduce the uh, rates of fetal malformations, uh, fetal malformation. Um, vitamin D supplementation, well, we test every uh, most women for this these days, and if the vitamin D is low, we get them to take vitamin D supplementations. That gives your baby stronger bones. Uh, fish oil, that's gone a little bit out of fashion now. Mm. They haven't been able to prove that fish oil helps. So that's where we stand with that. I don't think it's a bad idea, but um, I, I, I don't push fish oil. So what would be your top three tips for preparing for birth? Well, I suppose the most important is that you're in a good social space. So what that would mean is you've got uh, good partner support and uh, that you're in a situation with your work that you're able to uh, um, hopefully go part-time take time off. Mm. Uh, the other thing would be physical health. Very important to be fit and healthy. So um, good, your weight's good. You wouldn't want to be smoking and um, you know, moderate to limited alcohol intake, lots of exercise. And then it, I suppose if you've got some underlying medical condition like uh, epilepsy or diabetes or whatever else, then um, you should get this seen to either through the, the GP, uh, a specialist or, or an obstetrician. Yeah, well, thank you so much for today's sharing your wisdom with us today on Meditalk. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Janae. A big thank you to Dr. Gabay for sharing his knowledge with us today on Meditalk. And to learn more about Dr. Gabay, visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. 
Stay well and thank you for listening.